Hello, and welcome to Church in Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. On this episode, we talk about a topic that very few people want to talk about, and that is mental illness. And we talk about it with someone who belongs to a profession that doesn't want to talk about it. That is clergy. And so on this episode, we'll talk about clergy who are dealing with mental illness. Welcome to Church in Maine. This is the podcast. It is at the intersection of faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. This is episode 143. So, especially in the wake of the COVID uh, pandemic, one of the things that I have really noticed is how much we are kind of talking more about mental illness. Not because necessarily we want to, but because we have to. Uh, We're seeing a lot more younger people dealing with mental illness. I know of people in my own life and in my congregation that are, um, have children that are dealing with mental illness. But we're also dealing with that as a society, as we are seeing um, people who are in need of mental health um, and in some cases not getting it. Sometimes people that we see out on the street um, who are dealing with homelessness are people who are dealing with mental illness. So mental illness is out there, and it obviously comes in various forms, um, from depression to anxiety um, to bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. There are many people and millions of people um, in America and in other countries that are dealing with mental illness. And in some ways, because of what has happened um, in the last few years after COVID, it's becoming more and more out in the open. A few months ago, um, actually, as uh, Lent was starting up, um, I noticed an email, um, email that I get um, as a communicator uh, from the and I work at a Lutheran congregation during the week when I'm not uh, preaching, and I received something from our synod about a video. Uh, and this video was from a, a pastor in the synod, and um, and the synod in this in this video, he is basically deciding to give something up for Lent, and what he's giving up is the stigma of mental illness. Seth Perry is the person behind this video, and I will put that in the show notes. And he decided that it was time for him to come clean and come forward to talk about his mental illness. And for many years, he has uh, dealt with uh, bipolar disorder. For several years, that that was one that was untreated, and it had very negative results. And some of those included hospitalizations. Afterwards, sometimes it meant medicating, not necessarily with uh, 
drugs to help, but drugs basically to numb the pain um, with addiction. But he decided this year to actually come forward and talk about being a pastor with bipolar disorder. Um, He has been for the last uh, 13 years or so on medication and therapy and has been doing well. And um, he thought that it was time for him to come forward so that other people can come forward to talk about um, either their own struggles with mental illness or a loved one who is dealing with mental illness. So in this episode, I'm going to talk to to Seth. Um, Seth uh, hails from uh, British Columbia. Um, he in, and he is currently a pastor at um, Elam Lutheran Church in Scandia, Minnesota, which is a small town um, north of the Twin Cities. And so we will talk about his story, kind of what got him to this point, his own growing up uh, with bipolar disorder, and what is the message um, that those who are either are dealing with with mental illness or have a loved one, what is the message of hope that they can hear? So I hope that you will definitely uh, tune in to this important message as we talk to Seth Perry. Thank you, Seth, for uh, taking the time to talk. I know this is actually the third time to try to do this. So uh, it's the wonders of podcasting. Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing to to, um, start off with is is to tell us a little bit about um, your background. I know that you are a pastor in um, Scandia, Minnesota, which is north, just kind of north of the Twin Cities. but just be curious to hear a little bit about um, your background, and I know that you are—you come from um, north of the border as a Lutheran pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of to hear your background. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And my background—I grew up in Coquitlam, British Columbia, a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia, and I was a cradle Lutheran. Uh, and I lived there in the um, greater Vancouver area until I was 29 years old. I, I moved to Vancouver Island, and uh, so I had an undergraduate degree at the time, um, decided to become a pastor at that point at the age of about 30, uh, went to seminary, and uh, I was, uh, you know, did an internship in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is pretty far north. After that, I moved to Kingston, Ontario, Canada for three years for my first call. And then I took a call here in Scandia, Minnesota, which is due north of St. Paul, Minnesota, about 35 minutes out of downtown St. Paul. And uh, we're we're a, uh, you know, a, a rural bedroom community. And that's where I do my work as a pastor. So in kind of all of your growing up, um, when did you or family members kind of early on start to kind of know what was going on with you when it came with um, mental health? So, yeah, I would – the way I would categorize my family is a, a family where 
the uh, genetic uh, and uh, and generational effects of mental health were appa- apparent, really, uh, from my time of 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 of, uh, of childhood, uh, even from birth, I would say. So there were uh, there were environmental effects from alcoholism from other family members, and there had been uh, a, a few members of my family in previous generations that had had mood disorders. Uh, and when I started to see mental health uh, issues manifest in myself, uh, that was in my early uh, preteen years uh, through to my my teenage years. Um, that's when I started to see heightened anxiety, loss of sleep, and a propensity for addiction which all are um, early warning signs of a possible mood disorder. Um, and uh, and so that's when my parent, parents became concerned. I had other members of my family with more advanced symptoms that were older than me that had been hospitalized. So at that point, it was pretty tense in my family, uh, pretty chaotic and confusing because parents are trying to help their kids and also learn a lot about mental health and specifically mood disorders in general. So uh, I think that that's the best way I can describe my uh, my teenage years when things began to manifest. Mm-hmm. And then moving into college, how did that then? How did, did things change? Did things get better? Worse? About I would same? say, yeah, things got worse as uh, I moved into college. <clears throat> So my high school graduation was marked with a, a, a major psychological uh, incident. Um, so I would call it a uh, major incident of psychosis, my first psychosis. So that's very common for people with mood disorders where you would have psychosis, which can manifest in many ways. There can be a depressive psychosis where someone just can't get out of bed. There's manic psychosis um, and uh, and really anything in between on that spectrum. Um, some people have delusional uh, psychosis that may involve hallucinations as well. But for myself, it was a, a manic episode marked uh, by – then ended by a major depressive episode which pulled me out of school at a time where I was graduating. And because it was a medical incident, I was able to graduate university or sorry, high school without and, and get on to university um, only because the special incident that uh, actually doctors and my parents worked to worked with the school board, uh, uh, acknowledging my diagnosis at the time and said that this would be similar to any, any other disease. So, I really lucked out and was able to uh, graduate with all my peers, even though I had uh, a, a serious, serious incident uh, of, of psychosis. So moving into university, I was always kind of worried about it happening again. And it's triggered by stat, uh, sorry, it's triggered by uh, stress. And uh, as university, um, wore on over the years. The most stressful year was my final year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it happened again, but it was um, worse this time. So in my early 20s, I had uh, another massive uh, uh, episode. Uh, it was a manic episode that landed me in the hospital 
for about uh, seven or eight weeks. Um, and again, coinciding with the stress of graduation. Um, and so I was uh, put into a psych ward for the first time in a locked unit and uh, put on a regiment of uh, therapeutic medications. Um, and uh, and that's where I was at at the age of 24 when I finished uh, university. Um, and uh, that was not the place I wanted to be at that time in my life. Mm. So was it around that time or, or during that time that they kind of, because I know you have talked about being manic, um, uh-huh. what they call manic depressive now is bipolar disorder. Yeah. What had that by that time given it a name that, that this is what you were dealing with? Uh, yeah. So I was diagnosed at that time. Um, and, uh, I'll tell you this growing up in, a, uh, um, my whole life, the word manic depressive was always thrown around because I had a great uncle that had that diagnosis and, uh, and he died quite young, um, in, you know, in some mysterious circumstances around, a, um, he, he died in a car accident and we weren't really sure how, how that came to be, if it was an accident or if it was intentional and it's just something our family doesn't know. So we'd always use that term manic depressive and, uh, and, um, around the, the, uh, the time that I was diagnosed, then I was diagnosed with a bipolar type one. And, um, even in my late teens, when I graduated high school, um, there was a tentative diagnosis of bipolar disorder on the table. And, uh, and it was only really just confirmed, um, when I had my next major episode and was hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what is the difference between kind of the two episodes, between a, a period where you're really manic or you're manic and then the other side of that when you're kind of dealing with depression? Yeah. So mania, the way that it looks for me is uh, I need very little sleep or no sleep. Um, so a manic episode may start where um, I I would think it's a good idea to only get four hours of sleep because I can work late into the night, sleep, and then wake up. Uh, if you're manic, the quality of sleep that you're getting in those four hours is not restorative. It's not healthy. Um, it's not a, a deep type of sleep. And so uh, you're up in the morning and right back at it um, chasing those ideas. So you got a lot of creative inspiration, um, and, uh, and start, you know, obsessively organizing things and, uh, work to be really productive. So, you know, part of the reason why I think I see it, see it manifest in a lot of university students is because, uh, they're put to the task of being creative, uh, fitting a lot of things into their schedule, taking on a lot of stress, um, and so that's how I was dealing with university. And at the time, uh, you know, I was riding little manic waves throughout my whole university undergrad education. So, uh, you know, 
I I would think, hey, this is a great idea. This is totally normal for me in my first uh, seven or eight semesters of of university. So for three years to take five classes, uh, which is the maximum, um, and pack them all in um, and uh, and and succeed with you know carrying a a B average through through all of those. Um, but I mean. I, I even packed them in between Wednesday and Thursday. So Wednesday and Thursday, I was going to university and taking classes for 11 to 13 hours. Um, and then uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday were all days that I would have a very active social life. And so um, things things are very unbalanced like that for individuals who are – unstable, unmedicated, that may be bipolar and have uh, a propensity for mania. Now, the flip side of that, depression, um, is something that I think that a lot of people, if you haven't uh, felt a clinical level of depression, it's just hard to uh, really understand. But Mm -hmm. it feels like the most heavy blanket is, uh, is weighing you down. And uh, your mind is going at a snail's pace and it's confusing to gather your thoughts Um, and you don't have a great opinion of yourself. And part of the whole piece of this is is that, uh, you know, doing the dishes, taking a shower, uh, making your bed, sweeping the floor, vacuuming. Uh, the most basic tasks, organizing your backpack, um, all of those sorts of things when it comes to depression. And for people with bipolar disorder, depression can last 6, 8, 10, 15 months at a time. And it's often followed by a massive crash, right? Mm-hmm. So you crash down from mania into depression. So that's what it would look like for me. You know, uh, poor hygiene, staring at the TV screen, um, you know, and and and, um, and so, you know, for, I, 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 I'm not proud to say it, but I mean, I, I in, in many ways, it's it is funny. I think I've seen Star Trek The Next Generation all the way through two times because that was on daytime TV. The same goes with all of CSI. And all of Law and Order and every single uh, brand, possible branch of Law and Order, I've probably watched maybe mm, I don't know three hundred hours of Jerry Springer because of uh, those times in my life uh, where I was depressed, just uh, on my side staring at the the TV screen, unmedicated. That's that's me. If I don't see a psychiatrist, I don't take my medication, and I'm not in contact with my family doctor. Mm. Yeah. So when you ended up in the hospital mm-hmm. and that time, what were things like after after that whole period? Did things kind of balance out, or was that still kind of still in that depressive phase? Or what I would say is. I was depressed, but there's another aspect to this, uh, and that's um, I was embarrassed that I had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and I was 25 years old. And uh, 
something that I see in a lot of people that have mental health conditions in their mid twenties, uh, which is where it manifests for many people is that, um, it's more than just a fear of missing out. It's, it's a complete fear of being connected with, uh, peers because, uh, a doctor will say, go to bed early, take your medication. Don't smoke marijuana. It'll mess with your medication. Don't drink. It'll mess with your medication. Um, I don't know what the what people are thinking listening to this about what your average 25-year-old kid is up to, but they're probably staying up late, late going to music festivals. They're, they probably are going to have a drink and they, you know, marijuana usage is totally within the realm of possibility. Uh, and that was a definite fear of being completely, you know, it, it just seemed like everyone was planning to go out and, and do things at 9 p.m. And I was trying to get my sleep back into a regular schedule, right? So I felt completely disconnected from my friends in a social life. Here's here's a, an, an interesting piece that goes along with all this. So once I finally got well, I realized that there were whole timelines in my life, like a two-year block where I was trying to deal with my symptoms, where I didn't pay attention to what the popular movies were that people were going out on dates to, you know, because I didn't have an active social life, you know, like I didn't, I didn't know what popular TV shows were people were watching because I was too focused on trying to get my life together, going to support group meetings in the evening and just not really spending time with people. It's just like you feel like you drop off the, the map. So there's a social side to it. But then the um, psychological recovery side is also it, it's a painstaking process, especially right when you get out of the hospital. By no means when you get out of the hospital, what I say an individual leaving the psych ward is um, stable. They are, you you know, to make a, you know, an analogy or a comparison, they would be as stable as someone who has just left uh, the hospital who got a few stints put in their heart. You know, um, that individual still needs to follow a particular diet to keep them out of the hospital to follow a regiment of exercise and to continue to meet with a doctor. And there's a similar thing when the brain goes through such a traumatic event, like, uh, like a, a manic episode in a, and a, a long period in a psych ward where your mind has to recover and sort of stabilize. So, you know, every time I've been in the psych ward, it's, it's been a lengthy recovery. Yeah. And how do you think that you early on, especially coped with things? I mean, was it seeing a psychiatrist, but, or was it kind of, you know, as some people would say, self-medicating, mm -hmm. um, with alcohol or things like that. How, how did you early on kind of come to terms, especially being in your mid twenties and trying to get to some sense of, of, of st stable, a stable life? Yeah. What happened was, 
I self-medicated from ages 25 to 29. And um, if anyone has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I really think that um, self-medicating is probably the worst idea for, for you. Um, I have always succeeded by following the directions of my family doctor and my psychiatrist and counselors. So I didn't receive any degree of success until I was 29. Um, you know, when I said like, it takes two years sort of for you to, um, come to terms with a schedule and to mm-hmm. kind of accept d- drug therapy and all that. Well, uh, from age 25 to 29, I was hospitalized three more times. Wow. Not, you know, not, not because I was, and it was almost like, it was almost like, uh, on a schedule, like in 2007, it was in December, 2008, it was in November and you know, the next is so just like every year in the fall or winter, I'd end up back in the hospital, um, until, you know, one time where I, felt unwell and voluntarily checked myself in. And eventually that led to me listening to the psychiatrist for some, for some reason, um, which, you know, I think there's a a faith element to this for myself. Some reason I was mentally and physically and spiritually prepared to do absolutely everything it, it, it took to maintain, uh, some mental wellness Um, and so I said, I'll do whatever a psychiatrist says, I'll take whatever suggestions they they're making. Life has gotten as bad as it can be. And so, yeah, I was, what I did to settle in at the age of 29 was I committed to going to group therapy every, well, first of all, hospitalized for five months, uh, at a treatment center for some for for people that uh, are dual diagnosis so addiction and uh and mental health conditions so they had psychiatrists and and addictions counselors the other part of it uh was i i made a commitment every tuesday for a year and a half after my release i would go to group therapy um and i did that and i didn't miss a, a single week Um, and, uh, I committed to being involved in support groups. I got active in my church community. So, um, you know, physical, mental, um, emotional and spiritual well-being all sort of became a priority because I just said, I'll listen to absolutely everything that a doctor has to say as a suggestion and I'll just take it. And, and it worked, uh, thankfully. So what was your faith like up to this point? Um, knowing that you had grown grown up Lutheran, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, where did you feel God was in all of this, you know, up to being 29, especially in those years between 25 and 29? Yeah. Well, what I would say is I had a great upbringing in the Lutheran church and had a awesome connection to faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of living in a family where mental, uh, mental wellness, uh, kind of plummeted for everyone in the family around the age of 15 for myself, 
it was a confusing time. And I think that uh, I blamed uh, the church for a lot of, you know, the chaos that was happening in my life. And I stepped away from the church for um, 14 years. Um, and then when I was 29 and I got sober again, I, I somehow became open-minded enough to consider going back to church because I kind of looked back at the uh, 14 years that I'd been away from the church and I thought, uh, you know, there were times where I certainly was living by faith, really. Mm-hmm. There were times where um, I would be shouting out to someone, uh, just profanity, shouting it out on my bed and, uh, you know, in, in a way, just asking for help from God. And there, there was no one else in the apartment. I was just shouting out and. I remembered that and, you know, people were asking me, when were times in your life where you lived, lived by faith, even though you said that you didn't believe in God? And that was one of the times, right? There were many times that I could look back over the 14 years in my uh, late teens and early adulthood where I still had a foundational belief in, in God. It's just that when I finally found a little bit of stability with my mental health, I realized that the faith piece of this all, the spirituality piece of this all is part of the solution for me. And mm-hmm. so I kind of embraced that and found out a lot, um, a lot of good stuff about grace and forgiveness. And, and I started to feel good in my own skin again. Yeah. And then what made you start to think about ministry? So I was at a crossroads where, you know, in my active addiction, I was uh, actively pursuing a, a, a career as a stand-up comedian, and I'd mm-hmm. done work as an amateur comedian and was um, was doing some semi-professional work as a comedian. And um, it just was not realistic for me as someone who was brand new in recovery um, you know, and just trying to uh, em- embrace a routine where I could just take my medication at the same time every day, get to bed around the same time every day, wake up in the morning, uh, you know, and and live a productive life. I just no one thought, no one in my support group. I had a support group, and they all said, "Yeah, uh, pursuing." your dream of being a comedian right now is not a good idea. Um, And so I had to kind of let that go. And, you know, once, once I'd let that go, I was active in my church and I, um, I had a a pastor who had worked as a, as a chaplain uh, in, in the uh, uh, federal corrections uh, institutes of, of, of Canada. And his story appealed to me. Uh, working in that environment and working with inmates. Mm. Um, And I just had never really thought about ministry in that way. And so I didn't know what I was getting into. So I contacted the seminary. They wouldn't let me alone, really. They continued to pursue and recruit me. And a few years after that, then I was getting my Master of Divinity and I was in seminary, and it was really just because I was interested in helping people. I was at a crossroads where I think, uh, you know, 
people were saying, are you going to be a counselor? Are you going to be an addictions counselor? What are you, you going to work doing that? Are you going to be a social worker? And I considered those briefly, but for some reason, the, uh, the creativity that a pastor has, I think really, um, it, 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 that was what attracted me, you know, like helping people in a way that, uh, was in some way creative and inspirational. I, I really just found that to be the best, the best fit for me really. Yeah. So you go through seminary and then you're, um, going to a first call or maybe even a second call. Mm-hmm. And in one of our previous iterations of this, you talked a little bit about the difficulty sometimes in bringing up um, mental illness. And in fact, mm-hmm. you didn't. Um, and we'll get to when you actually do come forward to talk about that. But um, what, what was it about that that you didn't feel comfortable bringing up? And I think you've also talked about that it seems a lot easier to talk about addiction, pastors with addiction, than oh, it yeah. is a pastor with a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So I came into the whole candidacy process to become a pastor. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit intimidated that um, – there were many hoops that I needed to jump through and the background check. And, uh, you know, uh, I was someone who had a major, um, addiction issue and I just was concerned about that. And then even thinking about the fact that I'd been in a psych ward, uh, four times, uh, kind of just terrified me. Mm. And so that was just in the back of my head as well. So to become a candidate, to become a pastor, and part of the whole process of getting my master's degree meant that I got a psych evaluation. And I I put that off for years. And finally, the seminary was like, you, you got to get this done. Uh, we're surprised you haven't done it by now. And I went and I did it. And, you know, uh, I think there was maybe one question about you know, if, if I'd been diagnosed with anything and what I do to treat it. And I told her and, uh, you know, nothing happened. Um, and, uh, and then soon after that, I became an intern pastor and, you know, people were like, share your story about being a, a recovering addict. That's really inspirational. And I did. And sometimes it works its way into my sermon and, um, family members, uh, of of uh, recovering addicts would uh, approach me and have coffee with me. There are folks that would be uh, attending the church that I was an intern pastor at, and uh, it sparked a lot of meaningful conversations. Um, however, <coughs> however, I I I just didn't want to talk about also having bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that stage, I didn't feel comfortable. I wasn't sure about your average layperson about what they actually knew about bipolar disorder. I wouldn't know if uh, people would see me in a different light. I didn't see a lot of people in leadership positions openly discussing 
the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And, you know, people often told me, you know, you don't have to tell anyone. You don't ever have to tell your employer. You don't ever have to share this with, uh, with anyone you don't want to. And, um, and I didn't really see any leaders in, in the church doing it. So, uh, yeah. So for five years, I, uh, was an intern pastor and, uh, and, and was, a in my first call and into my second call where I just, uh, kept quiet about it. Um, worked with a lot of people that had relatives or were individuals that were attending churches that, that had mood disorders or other, uh, related mental health conditions and, um, and just sort of never opened up about, my own uh my own history yeah was there a fear that people would find out or and reject you well yeah and you know i had heard when i first sort of was kicking around the idea um a few other pastors had said you know people might be worried about how uh, someone with bipolar in a leadership position that also um, has some influence over the church's finances, that there would be some concern around that because folks with bipolar disorder, uh, when they're not well, can spend a lot of money. Uh, so there's that. Or uh, someone else mentioned something where they said a symptom of bipolar disorder is hypersexuality. So, um, there might be a concern that you would cheat on your wife or, uh, you know, be promiscuous with parishioners. And, um, I think those are all fair generalizations, like <laughs> unfair, mm-hmm. maybe unfair generalizations is the better term. <laughs> um, because, uh, they're all things where I'm like, duh. Yeah. I know about, I know about, I know the list of symptoms maybe better than, most people, but, um, I mean, it does, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen in my life. And it only, it only worries me more when people bring that kind of stuff up. Right. So, um, that kind of hindered me from, you know, being open because, uh, in, in the back of my mind, I was thinking if I announce this, are people going to be thinking, okay, well now I'm worried about him, uh, you know, absconding with uh, a parishioner or uh, misappropriating funding or not showing up to work or, uh, you know, um, even becoming delusional or something like that. Um, That, that was my concern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads up to what happened this Lent. Yeah. And you started a campaign that came up on, um, on YouTube mm-hmm. and actually got shared um, with your, in, with the wider um, synod that you're a part of called yep. give up the stigma. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? What was the genesis behind that? And, and what was the result? So I thought, Hey, this would be something that I'm feeling ready to share where I can just be honest about it, preach about it. Uh, provide some education within my congregation about it. And around the same time, I was considering that the um, the synod, uh, the St. Paul Synod, offered a small 
mental health grant. Um, and I applied for it and I received some funding. Um, and I was going to um, put that funding towards uh, some education, uh, some educational seminars are going to be happening uh, at our church. And so um, I put that whole piece together and decided that I would launch things in just with one video and explain I'm a clergy person. I have bipolar disorder. Uh, and uh, if anyone feels comfortable talking about mental health and mental uh, mental health conditions this Lent, then definitely give that up for Lent. Give up the stigma of uh, mental health conditions for Lent alongside of me and we can talk about it just so that a dialogue could begin. And uh, that's what the invitation was. And it got shared around to a lot of people and uh, a lot of people got quite excited about it. So I was, I was, uh, you know, it's happy and overwhelmed that, uh, there was such a response. Yeah. And what was the response, especially within your congregation? Within my congregation, I mean, a huge percentage of the congregation came to a place where they were just admitting that there were people in their lives or they were people themselves that have some, connection to a mental health connect a condition right uh so anything from someone who takes antidepressants and who doesn't ever really feel like they can share about it someone who needs a sun lamp for seasonal effect uh, affective disorder um to individuals whose child may have a mood disorder um every single possible way that you think that something could be connected like generational trauma from schizophrenia in the, in the family, there, there were all sorts of stories and experiences. And if people didn't have someone close to them, then they were, it, 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 it just fit in perfectly because we found a lot of people that were willing to just be helpers, to learn more, to listen more, and to experience where faith and mental health can kind of dwell in the same space. Yeah. And in kind of that bringing up, as it has been, um, people within the creation kind of sharing their own stories, um, do you think that that's kind of helped in some ways of openness with within your congregation, but even probably outside of it and, and helping people understand um, people living with mental illness? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there's two ways that it really helped outside the, uh, you know, like the, the congregation. Like the one way was every week, our regular churchgoers were um, getting a chance to take in a sermon that was, you know, reflective in on some aspect of mental health and, and, and spirituality. So the Sunday sermon was a longer piece. And, and then the uh, Wednesday night services, those, those were shorter pieces where uh, people could think, reflect, and then take it to the coffee t- hour and and sit around and you just saw 
table after table of people talking about really interesting and vital things. But then in terms of uh, how this had reach outside of the community, I just started getting contacted by people who were, uh, you know, who were, were not related to our church and because mm-hmm. uh, either through press or um, other, other types of, um, uh, 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 through social media, they would reach out to me and share a story, sit down and want to talk and have a phone conversation about uh, mental health and just how they've never really had a chance to talk t- to a pastor about something like this. Yeah. How do you think the church has handled mental illness as a whole? Um, it seems like from, from your result, this is something that we don't really always talk about. And it seems like it's always something that is kept in the shadows. Absolutely. I think that um, there's a lot of work to be done. And um, I think that um, there's a few things at play here. I think that sometimes people at church are not willing to, historically speaking, this is historically in the church, are not really willing to talk about anything along the emotional spectrum. Uh, You know, if it brings up emotions in in a person, sometimes people can really just go back on their old behavior, uh, you know, and, and just remain stoic, which a lot of people at churches, especially Lutheran churches do. Um, they don't want to, they don't want to bring up anything that kind of upsets them. So trauma or, uh, or, you know, anything that brings up shame, you know, especially like shame's a huge part of, uh, having a mental health diagnosis. So some people just would be like, if I'm ashamed around people at my church, then traditionally I've learned to kind of suppress, suppress that. So that's one aspect to it. I, I think, and I think another aspect to it is that, uh, maybe the church has been a little bit too self-sufficient on, uh, the reach of, uh, of spirituality when it comes to our own wellness. Mm. Uh, I think that maybe, um, there's sort of just been, uh, this idea that the church is the place that, um, if you're not well, you will come to and you'll be healed. This is the place where, where we, where, where everything Everything begins and ends. This is, you know, and and I definitely think 30, 40 years ago, the importance of a pastor um, as it relates to absolutely everything that you would need to be counseled, that would be the person who would counsel you. Forget a psychologist, forget a psychiatrist, forget talking to your doctor about any anything like that. Uh, it's, that's just not the world we live in today. It's a completely different world out there. And so it's maybe, maybe right now the, the church is a little bit behind on, uh, you know, seeing how we fit into, 
um, a community of wellness where there's other organizations and other places where people can uh, can receive help alongside with the assistance of a doctor getting uh, you know uh, and, you know maybe maybe you can think about how uh, your pastor does one thing but he's limited and the same come would, would be with a psychiatrist or a doctor there'd be certain limitations where they can't they can't help you on cert, certain things but if you want to talk about hope grace forgiveness um, and and really self-acceptance then the pastor's the right place to go but if you want to talk about um, finding something to treat your your delusional thinking then I think you better go to a psychiatrist, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and I think that leads to this question is, sure. where can the church be supportive? Because obviously there are certain things it can't do, and, and that's why we do have psychiatrists and psychologists um, and medicine and all of that. But where can the, the church offer support to people who are dealing with mental illness or people who whose families are have a loved one that's mm-hmm. dealing with mental illness? I think that for the church to, um, to be a part of a comprehensive community network of support. Um, I think that educated decisions have to be made by church leadership on, uh, where are the gaps Locally, I think things need to be thought of in a, a, you know, uh, on a community level, right? Um, And that's where the church can really begin to um, bridge gaps where uh, people are falling through the cracks. I think that um, the church can often be the first place that someone in a mental health crisis could turn, right? So, in order to be prepared, I think that every church should uh, put it on a high, high priority to have some way to respond to mental health and wellness uh, mm. uh, crises. Right? Um, I think that um, you know, church staff and pastors um, need to understand that. That's that's a role where the uh, that the church is going to have to play, um, and I think that's a, a lot of what our our congregation has done since the beginning of of the campaign in Lent is that the congregation has said, "Wow, there's a huge deficit in our community, right? There's people who want to have counseling but can't find counseling. There's people living with undiagnosed mental health conditions." that need to be referred to the right organizations. Uh, and there are people out there that have all of these other related problems like, uh, food insecurity, homelessness, um, spousal abuse, which all seems to relate back to some root problem with, uh, lack of support for mental uh, mental health conditions, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so the people who come to our food shelf, uh, you know, 
are our food shelf volunteers prepared to refer to any organization locally that can help with counseling and other things if they uh, begin to get to know people and understand more about their life and see red flags and and, and start passing on uh, information to 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 our our clients to to see if they can also uh, get them help outside of just uh, providing them meals right mm-hmm. um, and and also to think about uh, we we get we get many many calls from people just out of the blue that just need help at the church office here mm-hmm. and uh, are we are we ready do we have plans in place have we thought about it and so our church really I think is in the process of um, of becoming uh, better prepared to serve the community in that way. And there's an openness to do that, that I don't think has existed in our congregation before. And it really, um, it really came about because people were willing to have conversations about this. Yeah. Mm. So um, coming that you come from, from Canada. And one of the things that I've heard a lot, especially here and, and even in my own congregation is really in some ways how hard it is sometimes to for people to get really even adequate mental health care mm-hmm. um sometimes to even find um a bed for hospitalization mm-hmm. um and i'm kind of curious if that has been a problem um in canada as well um and and maybe just kind of a larger question of why do you think that that seems you know, we've made such advances when it comes to everything else kind of health-wise, but it seems like with mental health, there's still some, there's still ways to go um, to, to kind of helping people when they're dealing with that part of, of their health. Yeah. Well, I think that um, if we were to look closely, and I'm pretty confident that through my experience and through the experience of many of, of my other peers, um, that uh, that are living well with mental health conditions and that have been hospitalized in the past. Uh, I think that the majority of mental health discharges, if you have a look at them, uh, the motivation behind each of those discharges is to free up bed space, to be honest, because there just isn't, mm. there isn't enough, uh, um, bed space in just regular regular hospitals. There aren't enough uh, psychiatric beds for for patients, um, and so it shows that there's something uh, missing in between um, critical care for folks that have. Uh, that have mental health conditions and are in a mental health crisis to moving back home. There, mm-hmm. there has to be something more in between. There have to be, um, there have, mm-hmm. there has to be, there has to be something, you know, like I was lucky enough that I had a, a five month program from a private hospital paid for to get me to the point of, self-sufficiency and uh, independent living. However, 
um i'm a minority in that like mm-hmm. uh the majority of people get out of the hospital as soon as they want to or as soon as the uh, team of psychiatrists get them out really so mm-hmm. um and that's why people sometimes don't make the connection they wonder they'll see folks that are not well on the street and they're like who in their family is looking out for them you know i'm like an ind- that that individual may not want help from anyone even their family maybe even less so from their family when you see someone who can't take care of themselves that obviously is either delusional or is hallucinating on the street and is not well kept and people wonder i wonder who who's connected to them who's their family all that well it's not necessarily a matter of family my life could have gone that way um i I, you know my mom always says that my life could have gone that way uh i'm lucky that i had i had stuff provided for me to bridge the gap because uh, there, there's there's that huge huge gap missing and and that's the big missing piece is that um, some somehow we need to uh, fund fund that um, find ways to fill that in but again uh, I think that in many ways um, churches pastors deacons uh, church councils they can look at how can they make a modest contribution to um, bridging bridging that gap? Yeah. Well, kind of as we wrap up, I wanted to do two questions is, sure. to talk about is, one is how can churches be better, I guess, for lack of a better term, allies yep. in helping um, people within their communities, but in the wider communities who are, who are experiencing and, and dealing with mental illness? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is uh, a place for resources and workshops, and they can do resources online. Uh, they can do Zoom meetings. They can be in person. They can work with any church out there to um, develop uh, develop the church's overall skills in uh, responding to the needs of individuals. So uh, there are lists of numerous seminars that are suitable for church leadership and the general congregation. So that's 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 uh, that's one way. Um, and um, every, every local county's health unit um, and, um, uh, and and just general uh, municipal governments, they, they also uh, provide support groups and there's, uh, um, there's you know, county medical uh, um, officials that you can reach out and see what the needs are in your county. I think that our church leadership needs to think about what's happening at, at our local level and 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 where there are gaps because the biggest thing the biggest asset the churches have is is space mm-hmm. um and if a church is able and and they're often 
churches are in accessible spaces and central spaces. Um, and churches can make it very easy for organizations to work out of partner with, um, in order to provide community services and, and also to, you know, uh, and, and if, if people in your church are, are looking for places to assist, then they can also provide volunteer hours for those organizations too. So, uh, I think that you have to also look at who, who are those, uh, players locally, uh, that you can assist. So re- regionally here, there's, uh, you know, there's Lake area, uh, youth and family counseling service. Um, and, uh, they are on a shoestring budget and they tr- can barely hire enough, um, counselors, uh, and counselors are so hard to come by right now. Um, and, uh, and they're in, desperate need of, of fundraising. And, and so, you know, that's, that's something churches need to look at and acknowledge if there are community organizations that provide support for people with mental health conditions. Uh, is there any way that you can look at helping them with fundraising too, because money goes a long way as well. So, mm -hmm. and if, there is someone in in a situation that you were in, maybe that, that even is our, a pastor themselves, mm-hmm. that are that have a history of mental illness. What advice? And they haven't really shared that with anyone, um, or shared their struggles with anyone. What advice w- would you give them? Well, if someone that I know, or some sorry, if if, if someone um, that. Um, I've never met before. Um, and they're, they're living with a diagnosis. So yeah. Okay. If, if someone is living with a a, a diagnosis of some mental health condition and they're kind of feeling the way that I was, Mm -hmm. uh, where, uh, they, they really didn't feel comfortable sharing um, sharing anything about their mental health condition with anyone. Uh, I think, first of all, it's something you totally can keep to yourself if you're, if you're comfortable with it. That's that's one one thing. But if you if you're if you want to, then I mean, I always started off. Uh, this whole thing I started small, really. Um, I started sharing with, you know, friends that were outside of my circle of family that maybe I would like to share and open open up with about what I go through to, you know, every day to maintain my mental wellness. Um, you know, so I I think that if you're thinking of if you're in a leadership position, if you're, if you're like me, um, yeah, I would, I would continue to build, um, a group of supportive friends around you. Uh, that, that's something I've always had. I've always had people I can call, text, talk to that, that know, 
everything about me. But um, on the other hand, I think that um, I think that anyone in a leadership position, pastors, CEOs, uh, people in finance, doctors, uh, even if you are if you are allowed to uh, um, to to speak openly about this, if it doesn't hurt your career in any way. Then yeah, I would love to see more leaders out there um, share that they live with bipolar disorder. I'd love to see pe- more people in leadership position. If it in no way uh, negatively affects your job or you're in some way restricted to um, under under your contract or uh, uh, or through whatever um, um, regulating body gives you your credentials or anything like that. Uh, by all means, I'd love to see more, you know, athletes, um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, celebrities and, uh, and pastors even, you know, it's okay if you're a pastor, you can share, share this info. Be great to see more leaders talk about, um, what they go through to stay well. So, yeah. Mm If someone wants to kind of contact you or on the internet, um, yep. watch the videos, where should they go? Uh, they should uh, look for Seth Perry uh, on uh, on YouTube. All of my videos are uh, share and will always share the uh, hashtag, uh, hashtag give up the stigma because uh, I'm continuing to make uh, video content throughout this summer. With the hashtag "Give Up the Stigma," all one word, um, and you can uh, direct message me on Instagram at Vegan Pastor. Um, there's all sorts of ways. Just uh, Google my name; you, sh- you should be able to find me. All right. Well, Seth, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. This was a great um, interview. I'm glad it finally actually got to work this time. Awesome. I'm glad too. All right. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for listening to that very important interview. I do want to share that this was <laughs> it was a long road to get to this. Um, if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the fact that I was having some problems with um, kind of the podcast service that I use uh, to produce these podcasts. Um, I actually this is actually the third interview <laughs> that I did with Seth um, in the middle of one. Um, it kind of just cut out. Um, and so we had to kind of start over again. And then I found out that the um, it recorded his um, side of it perfectly. My side, it recorded for about three seconds and then it dropped. And so um, this was a something we had actually originally recorded in March. 
And then, of course, April with um, Holy Week and everything came in and he was gone. And um, so I, I am truly thankful for Seth for being patient um, and for trying again. And um, and so thank you. So also, just to let you know, uh, there are several links um uh, links to uh, his campaign of, of Give Up the Stigma, um, his, links to his videos, um, and then also a link to the National Association um, um, for Me- uh, Mental Illness. Um, and they have a whole bunch of resources there that will be helpful, um, just so that you know about that. Um, also, consider subscribing if you um, are listening to this on Substack. Uh, you can uh, find us um, at Church of Maine, all one word, dot substack, uh, dot com, and then subscribe, and it will end up in your mailbox. Um, you can also consider sub- uh, becoming a paid subscriber. That's for $5 a month or $60 a year. Um, there is also a link if you want to give a one-time donation. Um, also consider uh, if you... Uh, like what you hear, rate and review the podcast. Um, kind of the more uh, reviews, especially good reviews, the easier this is um, to find. So that is it for this episode. This is episode 143 of Church in Maine. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, my name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Take care, everyone. Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. <music>